My name is Ken Spence. I'm on the uh, FBC counseling leadership team. What we do in the leadership team is we help our people. We teach, uh, we recruit, we train, and we provide resources for the people that want to get into the, the counseling business in our church. Let me start us out with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you that we have people who are interested in speaking truth into people's lives so that they might grow in Christ's likeness, as it says in Romans 8:29, so they might see the sin in their life and help, see, help people see the sin in their lives. I thank you for people in this building right now who want to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, I'm going to get right into the lesson, and before I do that, I want to make sure everybody has one of these forms that says Biblical Counseling Assignment with red letters on it, because we're going to visit that uh, someplace later in the session. So if you don't have one of these, you can run to the back table back there, and there should be on both tables back there. So, starting out, what are the raw materials you have at your disposal, whether you're a counselor or a discipler? What are the raw, the raw materials you have at your disposal when you're sitting across the table from someone who's bogged down in their sin, who has lost hope, who doesn't know what to do? I would suggest there are three things that you have at your disposal. The first one is, and the most important thing is, that you have God's word. You have the Holy Scriptures, God breathed. The second thing you have is the Holy Spirit. You have it as a counselor, and hopefully, if you're talking to a believer, your counselee also has the Holy Spirit. That's important. Can you hear okay, Rick? How about in the back? Can you guys hear okay? It's a little low. Can you, can, no, sound booth, can you guys turn it up a little bit? Okay. Check, 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 check. How about now? You can hear it? Okay. I'll just talk a little louder. How's that? Okay. Three things that you have as your disposal. The first one's God's word. You might, if you're taking notes, the first item on your, on your session notes says give biblical instruction. Above there, write something like, you're the three things that you bring to the table. The first one is God's word, Holy Scriptures. The second one is the Holy Spirit, both you and your counselee. That's very important, especially for the counselee, because if the counselee doesn't have it, they don't have the power to change in their life through the Holy Spirit. The third thing is we have a plan. And you've heard that plan three times today already the six-step process that we use in the counseling cadre. It starts out with establishing rapport or passport with the counselee, getting to know them. There's three things that you need to convince them of. The first thing is that they can trust you. The second thing is that you care for them, because if you don't, they'll know it. The third thing is that they have to realize that you can help them through the sin in their life. So the uh, six, uh, you've heard the six-step process. I'm going to go through it really quick. The first one is gain involvement. Why? For just those three reasons I gave. The second one is to give hope. Uh, the, um, let me tell you the verse I like for giving hope. And I've been, you've heard it before. It's out of Second Peter 
chapter one, verse three, which says, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. That's a hope verse that I always use. The next thing is gathering data. You heard that from Kathy in the last session. Uh, I won't go into that. She did such an excellent job doing that and identifying the problem biblically. The six-step process are fluid. The reason I say that is you move around within those six steps, and we can go back and forth between identifying the problem biblically and addressing the problem scripturally, which I'm supposed to do in here, giving biblical instruction and assigning homework, a systematic process. And the two steps that people are probably most intimidated by are the last two, giving biblical instruction and assigning homework. And part of that is that people believe that they have to have the Bible almost memorized before they can help people with Scripture, and that's not true. You do have to have a knowledge of the Bible. That's certainly true. But you, you know, the, the main thing that you want to bring to that table is you can show them an avenue through Scripture to help them solve their sin problem. That's, uh, I think we can go on to the first item there, which is give biblical instruction. And this is a very familiar verse to most of you, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful or profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So the man of God would be equipped for every good work. Now, teaching... The bookends of that particular verse, the four items are, the first one's teaching, the fourth one is training in righteousness. Teaching is something that you're going to do as a counselor or a discipler. It's just going to happen. And teaching serves to inform the counselee or the person you're discipling to inform them about what the Bible says about their particular sin. And training in righteousness Training does two things. Training both conforms and it transforms through the through the work of the Holy Spirit. The uh, I think uh, what where it gets dicey is those two in the middle, the rebu rebuke and and correcting. Those are things that we and, until we get some experience underneath our belt at counseling, we're a little bit intimidated by trying to do that with people. It, 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 we think of, well, is it because we know more about Scripture than they do? Even though that's probably true, it's not something that we want to do so that we feel that they're superior, we're superior to them, and that usually doesn't happen. But what you want to do is, is make sure that you rebuke and you correct with compassion. Uh, and it's absolutely essential that this last step that we're going into giving instruction and assigning homework, it's absolutely essential that they be inserted after the first four steps. And I'm going to tell you why. There's a good, there's a good reason that biblical instruction is not step one or step two. And I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate that fact. I had a counselee, a male counselee, who was treating his wife poorly in some ways. Uh, I had heard the wife's story, but I hadn't heard his. But I assumed that everything she told me was true. 
which is a violation of Proverbs 18.13, which says, he who answered before he hears it is folly and shame to him. So that was the first thing I did wrong, is I listened to her, and then my meeting with him, I thought I knew more than I really knew. So I kind of buzzed through that getting involved, and I kind of knew him already. Uh, I don't remember giving him a hope verse, and then we got right into gathering data. And after about, say, 15 minutes, I thought I'd heard enough. So I said, you know, I need to do some biblical instruction here because I really think I know what's wrong with this guy. So if you can visualize this, I have a counseling gun in my holster, okay? I pull my counseling gun out. I insert cartridges of spiritual truth into this gun. The first one is 1 Peter 3, 7, which states that you treat your wife in an understanding manner and treat her as a worse vessel. So I got that cartridge in. The second one is 1 Timothy 5, 8, which states that you should treat, you should treat your family in a way that's uplifting. So I got that in my gun too. Colossians 3, 19 states, you love your wife and don't be harsh to her. So I got that's my third bullet. Now I have a metaphorical gun, so it only holds three bullets, okay? So I pull out the gun, boom, boom, boom. Then I pull out the heavy artillery. I have a what I call a spiritual grenade, and I pull the pin on this spiritual grenade, and I lob it over into this guy's lap, and it's Ephesians 525. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Now, are those all good verses? Yes? Yes. Okay, good. Yes, they are good verses. Are they all true? Do they all apply generally to this fellow? Yes, they do. The problem was I got into that. I didn't listen to the guy. I didn't hear him out. And he came to the point as I was talking to truth to him, they said, Ken, you're not listening to me. And he was absolutely right. I wasn't. So, and, and, and basically I got fired because I wasn't, uh, I didn't follow my own rules. I didn't follow the six, six step process and I didn't have compassion for the fellow. So, and I end up later on, I apologize to him and we're friends today, but that was an abject failure in my, one of my first counseling cases that I had. And I, I just had to remember that when I reprove or correct, I use God's word and his wisdom, not mine. And it's, it's easy just to tell someone to stop what they're doing. And you have to give them, you use the put on, the put off and the put on so that if you're if you're trying to help someone and you want them to stop doing something you have to give him some place to go where he's doing the right thing and this instruction on b item b it shouldn't be mixed with god's wisdom that's out of first corinthians 120 who is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Who is the baiter of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? One of my favorite, favorite unbiblical sayings is, is that 
you really can't forgive somebody until you forgive yourself. Is that true? I get one nod, I get a negative back here. Can I have another negative? Can I have another? Just give me a good solid no. No, thank you. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate that reinforcement. The, uh, another one is, you know, God is not opposed to, to hygiene, but is cleanliness is next to godliness? Is that in the Bible? No, it isn't. <laughs> it's not there. There are some others, too. There's, um, there's uh, God helps those who help themselves. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? But is it? Of course it isn't. Uh, there's some misconception. A loving God wouldn't allow destruction caused by the hurricane. That's a, you know, the people want to form God in the image that they want God to be in, but God doesn't do that. God does what pleases him. Matter of fact, Amos 3.6 says, if there's a calamity in the city, did I not cause it? Uh, doesn't God want me to be happy? Uh, if you believe that, then there's a church down in Texas that that actually preaches that. But, you know, the Bible has a lot of stuff on suffering, doesn't it? Mark Carey is sitting in the back right now. He's probably thinking about that series on suffering they did. It's uh, the Christian experience is going to be include some suffering. Let's do um, accurate instruction. We need to know the important, the meaning of some important Bible words. I think uh, Kathy Budney touched on this in her presentation. Uh, for instance, the the Bible teaches that um, love is important, but it uses basically three different words for love. Uh, the first one is phileo, which is brotherly love. The second one is eros, from which we get the term erotic, which is more or less sexual love. The third one is agape love, which is the love that wants the best for the other person. I had a counselee once, a, a male counselee, who asked me one time, He, well, let me tell you the situation first. He was caught in adultery, and his wife was on the verge of leaving him and asking for a divorce. And at this point that I met him, he still wasn't willing to leave the new woman that he was committing adultery with. And he asked the question, Ken, do you really think you can love two women? And he wanted me to say yes. And I said, well, it kind of depends on what you, how you define love. He was, in a sense, phileo loving his wife and eros loving his wife, but he was also doing the same thing with the person he was committing adultery with. He was had phileo love for her Eros love for her, and he didn't have agape love for either his wife or the adulteress. So there you go. There's some other terms. There's uh, some think that the word joy implies happiness. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't. Joy is the, is, is the being basically happy in, in spite of circumstances. That's what joy is about. Happiness is uh, a, a warm, fuzzy feeling, and that's not promoted in Scripture. as nice. The Bible talks about suffering, which often leads, in the Bible, often leads to character building, 
but the way the world looks at it, that you says you should avoid suffering at all costs. It uh, doesn't look at it as being character building. And the word hope, and I'm not sure if Kathy talked about hope or if Scott Crowley talked about hope, but the colloquial use in the English language of hope is to have wishful thinking about something. The way we look at it as Christians, it's the absolute assurance of victory in Christ. And there's some other other terms, too, that we're going to have to define for the counselee and make sure that we're sure about them ourselves. Some of them are, I've got them in here in, on your, on your uh, lesson handout, justification, sanctification, so, sorrow, biblical or worldly sorrow, confession, forgiveness, fornication, uh, adultery, faith, idolatry, guilt, humility, and pride. You, you shouldn't assume that your counselee understands and familiar with the biblical terminology that differs from the colloquial use of those terms. And passages must be understood properly within their context. You know, in a flurry to find verses that support what we're teaching, we sometimes invite verses that appear to support our instruction but address issues other than the one in the counselee's life. It's, uh, for example, you know, people sometimes need to be encouraged that the Lord is always with us, and he always is when we gather as a group to pray. But if we're tempted to use Matthew 18, 20, where it says, whenever two or more are gathered in his name, in my name, then I am in their midst, we should be reminded that if we go back to Matthew 18, 15, it says, if your brother sins and goes on to give instruction on church discipline. It's probably a more important, uh, more appropriate verse to use would be, Matthew 28, 20, the last part where he says, surely, Christ says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of this age. Something that, that we have to be very careful of is tailoring our instruction to focus on the counselee's problem, given appropriate instruction. All of us have our favorite passages that we like to go back to. We got to remember to use scalpel when we're doing, dealing with scripture with their problems and don't use a hand saw, we need to get the scriptures that clearly address their problems. The instruction should be appropriate, and this is important. Instruction should be appropriate to the counselee's spiritual condition. First of all, is he saved or is he unsaved? Does he need the gospel? If he's saved, then you can go on to give biblical instruction. If he's unsaved, then you change from a counselor to an evangelist. You have to tell them about the nature of sin, that he is, a, is, in, a, has, is in a sinful state. He needs a savior. God sent Christ to die on the cross for him individually. And that Christ rose on the third day and proved that was a satisfactory sacrifice for his sin to God the Father. So, and, and there's a lot more to that, as you well know. And how do you determine whether or not a, a person is saved or unsaved? Well, you probably are going to figure it out by reading his intake form, because the intake form asks questions like, what is your view of the gospel? Uh, what is your view of the Holy Spirit? And if you don't find it there, you probably most likely are going to find it in one of the first two to three sessions. And keep in mind also that some people, on the basis of their religious affiliation, believe that things save them that don't. Some people still think that when they're sprinkled as an infant that carries through into adulthood and they're saved, 
and they're going to heaven because they were sprinkled when they were an infant. We know, we know better than that. Uh, some religions say that walking the aisle is what saves you. Well, we know better than that, don't we? If you're going to have a personal relationship with Christ, you're going to have to accept him as your savior. And that, that's what's going to have make you have that personal relationship with him. And where is that person script, uh, maturely, uh, spiritually mature-wise? If we look at Hebrews 5.12, it says, but by, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Not everyone, and I think, I think Scott Crowley covered this, not everyone has been taught that God's word is inspired, has authority, and is sufficient. Even mature believers might believe that the word is inspired and authoritative, but they don't think it's sufficient. And the reason they don't is that they, uh, someone might have gone to a psychologist and been diagnosed with um, obsessive compulsive behavior. Well, obsessive compulsiveness isn't addressed in the Bible. Uh, someone might go uh, come with you that has a daughter that has anorexia. Well, anorexia is not mentioned in the Bible. Well, I have a neat book here called The Christian's Guide to Psychological Terms. I can look up obsessive compulsiveness in here. There's two types, obsessive compulsive disorder and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. These are descriptions. These are psychological descriptions. These are not Christian Christianity de deposition, the habitual pattern of a preoccupation with having things orderly, perfect, and in control, no room for flexibility and spontaneity. Another definition is having recurring thoughts that are irrational and lead to irrational behavior to re relieve the increased anxiety. Um, the biblical description is obsessive compulsive behavior is a manifestation of ungodly fear, okay? Fear is mentioned in the Bible, and it's mentioned regularly in the Bible. The uh, counselor has to determine what they fear and why. The counselee has become so consumed with his fear that his whole life is focused on preventing it. And this gives you some help as to how to, how, where to guide this person, both in biblical instruction and homework, when it says focusing on loving God and his neighbor by replacing his fear with love, he must put off again. There's a put off, put on. He must put off fear and put on love. That's uh, and there, there's there's a lot more to this. As you can see, there's columns and columns of these things. Looking at uh, let's look at one more. Let's look at anorexia. Anorexia, of course, is not mentioned in the Bible. And this definition, according to this, and this is one of the things that's uh, a few years ago was running rampant in the United States. It's an irrational dread of gaining weight and becoming fat. It becomes an obsession to be thin and fervent, insatiable pursuit of weight loss. And the psychologists admit anorexia is not a medical disease. It's a pattern of eating that the individual has chosen, so it's sin. It occurs almost exclusively in upper middle class families in industrialized societies with great cultural pressure 
for women to be thin and beautiful. The, the, um, what do we do as far as biblical description and what we're, how we're going to react to that? First of all, the anorexic must get a complete medical, medical exam. The anorexic's behavior is sin. She is neglecting to care for her, her body, which, she is a, which if she is a believer, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. She's attempting to be in control rather than in submission to God. Worshiping thinness and making her appearance and weight an idol, which is idolatry. She's focused on self rather than God. She's dominated by the fear of man. And she may not. First, one of the things they say that you should find out is if she is saved or not. Um, another use for this, for this book, it's not, a, it's not one of those one-stop shopping books, but it has a, an appendix of key biblical topics, things like anger, anxiety. It goes through um, uh, verses that you may want to assign as homework to combat things like anger, anxiety, and, and a whole list of other things. Looking at 1 Thessalonians 5.14, uh, talks to rebellious, weak, or the faint-hearted. You're going to deal with people that fall into those categories, rebellious, weak, or faint-hearted. And what's that verse say? It says, admonish the rebellious, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. But with all three of these people, you treat with patience. So most of the time, we don't have any trouble with treating the faint-hearted and the weak with compassion. Where we get in trouble is when we have a rebellious person, sometimes called an unruly person, sometimes called an idle person. This is, uh, I think the example I have of a rebellious person would be a guy that I had that came to me who had got divorced from his wife. And uh, I really, quite frankly, I wondered why he asked to come and speak with me. Uh, but what he wanted to do is tell me, justify why he had left his wife and divorced her. And I asked him, I said, well, what reasons do you have for divorcing your wife? And he said, well, uh, there's two reasons. Number one, uh, she wouldn't hug me. And he wasn't talking about sexual contact. He was talking about, she doesn't hug me like this. So he had a great need for that kind of contact. The other thing, and more importantly, that he thought or he wanted to convince me was that he, God had orchestrated his divorce so he could go out with another woman, tell her the gospel, and save her. Okay. And I had to ask him a second time, now let me get this straight. You think God orchestrated your divorce so that you could go out and evangelize this other woman and lead her to Christ. Is that correct? And he said, yes. Don't you believe that? I said, of course I don't. Of course I don't believe that. God doesn't bless disobedience. And I, re I met with this guy three times, and I come to think that all he wanted to do, he, he wanted some kind of uh, recognition that it was okay for him to get that divorce. And he kept clinging to that thought that God wanted him to get a divorce so he could evangelize this new woman. Well, it lasted after the third time, and he, he stuck to his guns on this. And 
I decided that I couldn't help him, so I let him go and uh, didn't hear from him after that. I really don't know what happened to him. Um, the last thing under the uh, assigning uh, biblical instruction is we have to tailor the counsel, the, the tailor the instructions to the counselee's learning style. In other words, uh, what I'm getting to there is most men, not all, are more visual than women. In other words, they're much more responsive to things like DVDs or CDs. Uh, they're not as responsive to reading books, uh, which is not to say there aren't exceptions. But women are much more conducive to going into something, reading something, and coming back and discussing it with you. And guys have a little more trouble with that. You might even do a little role playing with them. Now, going to get into assigning homework. I mentioned earlier that uh, a systematic process makes it easier for us to keep the ball rolling in the, rolling in the counseling process because uh, we, we um, uh, have to have structure when we go in and talk to people about these kind of things, and homework provides that structure. And one of the main benefits of assigning homework so they can serve as an important basis for what you're going to discuss on subsequent meetings. I found that when homework is assigned that targets their specific sins in their life, that it generates discussion, but it can cause the counselee to accept that the Bible really does have answers to their problem. And before we get down to the nuts and bolts of a case study that we're going to look at, I'd like to add a word of caution to um, the, the uh, issue of assigning homework because some homework assignments are much more time consuming than others. Um, I would use say John Morrison's, uh, he did a DVD series on marriage that um, each DVD is about, I think 45 minutes long and it has a lesson plan to go with each one. And sometimes the lesson plan has some questions. So if you're going to assign this to somebody, a marriage, say a woman, a man and a woman are going to have some marital problems, what you're going to have to realize is you're going to have to go through that DVD and that lesson plans along with them before you meet. And that's going to take some time. And I tried to estimate about how much time that would be. In other words, watching the DVD, that's 45 minutes to an hour. Looking at the lesson plans, that's another 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And then developing a plan of how to use that in the counselee's life. So you're talking about maybe two and a half hours of preparation time, and that's exclusive of the time that you're meeting with that person. Uh, if you're going to use a book, something like uh, Stuart Scott's Exemplary Husband for the guy, Stuart Scott's a straight shooter. Guys like him because he is a straight shooter has some questions embedded in each one of the chapters, um, but it's dense. I told you Lou Priello's is, is dense. Uh, Stuart Scott's not quite as, as theologically dense, but everything he says has a basis in Scripture. It takes maybe an hour to an hour and a half for somebody to read a chapter in this book, so we're looking at an hour and a half plus another 30, 45 minutes of preparation time with respect to putting together a lesson. So you're talking about two hours preparation time. If you don't have that kind of time, 
and sometimes you don't. Sometimes the counselee is too busy. Sometimes you're too busy. You might consider using one of these pamphlets. These are all from Stuart Scott also. This is Anger, Anxiety, and Fear. This one, which I especially like, is Pride to Humility, both by Stuart Scott. These are about 30 pages long. You can go through and read these in probably 30, 35, 40 minutes and use another 30, 45 minutes to figure out how you're going to use them in the counseling meeting. So you're looking at about an hour and a half preparation time exclusive of the time you're meeting with them. Uh, some biblical foundations um, down at Roman numeral I under homework. The uh, homework helps the counselee take responsibility for his or her part in the change process. And I use Ephesians 4.1 as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And, and this is important. We don't want the counselees uh, to, uh, or we don't want us to be more interested in them improving than they are. Homework helps. And when I get to the last part of this, I'll tell you another thing about homework. And uh, they, they should know, I think Kathy mentioned this, they should know that we don't change them. We can't change them. God is the only one that can change them. And, and, and the homework is just an avenue and a tool to use to get them to change hearts. Uh, but it takes their cooperation. And uh, homework develops a practical system to help the counselor be both a knower and a doer of the, of the word. You know, James 120 says, we say, be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. And it recognizes that talk alone robs people of the hope available in God and his word. And they use Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. The rains came, the floods rose, the wind beat, and it beat against the house, but the house did not fall. That's a man who listens and does God's word. And he tells the other side of the story the, uh, about the foolish man builds his, his house upon the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell, and its fall was great. The first man there, the wise man, had heart change based on what he heard in God's word and what you led him to in the sessions that you talked to him about his sin. And heart change always re results in behavioral change. Behavioral change doesn't always mean that there's been heart change. So someone may change their behavior uh, to what you tell them to do just to get you off their back but if they have real heart change their behavior will change for the good and homework also continues the application of biblical truth between sessions you know it's the the applications that put off and put on uh, Romans 6:13 says do not pre present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, Colossians 3, 5 through 11 has things that you do not do. In Colossians 
3, 12 through 17 says the things to do. Be sure and go over those things with your counselees. There, what you need to do is help your counselee come to face-to-face with God's word and the things he should know. Remember, if he is going to to have everything for life and godliness through the knowledge, he has to know about what Jesus wants for him and what to not do out of Colossians and what to out of Colossians. And homework can uncover additional counseling problems. It can reveal something about those who really just don't want to change. If somebody comes back to you time after time and they either haven't completed their homework or they obviously they have hastily put it together with short answers and they may be playing to what they think you want to hear, that means that they may not be committed to change. But I think the more they see God's truth in his word, and the more they're going to understand on their life, they're called to change in life and please God. What we're going to do now is um, do an exercise and in, in, uh, filling out the homework sheet to cancel the uh, biblical counseling assignment. We're going to do it based on this first case study here. I'm going to read it, and you can kind of read along with me as I read it. This is about... Steve and Sarah, they've been married 12 years. They've come to you for biblical counseling because their pastor told them to, and they need to get some help with their marriage. Sarah says Steve doesn't talk to her when he gets home, and he just eats dinner and watches TV into bedtime. She says he's a good provider, but she longs for the companionship they used to share, where they talked a lot and did fun things. You know, I'm not making this stuff up. This really, really happens. Steve says Sarah nags him and is not very interested in sex anymore and just doesn't understand why their marriage seems to be going downhill. So I picked up, you know, we can do both Steve and Sarah, but I picked for the, in the interest of saving some time, we're going to just help Steve out with some homework assignments. And do most of you have this with the red letters on it? Does anybody not have it? Okay, let's go through it. We're going to start at the top, and the first line, number one, says pray specifically for the counseling process at least three times a week. And it tells how you do that. See a little red check mark out there where it says pray for yourself. Steve is going to have to pray for himself, that God opens his eyes to see who he wants you to see about yourself and that where you would see where you need to repent, change, and grow. That's big. Pray for the counselor to depend on the Lord, have his wisdom and insight to discern where to work and what to do. Pray for your spouse. Steve needs to pray for his spouse. You know, she's having trouble with him and she's had some own issues in her. You know, we could go in and make a homework assignment for her too, to be encouraged in the Lord in the counseling process and by changes being made in their life. And pray together as a couple. This is one of the most important things. If you can get couples to pray together and talk about their the problems they're having, you've made inroads into helping them through their problems. Uh, let's go down to attend Sunday worship. I have here with your wife. Attend a small group if you have them available to you with your wife. And I got a check by other and... Uh, disregard that. So Bible reading. Let's think of what would be good for Steve to read. 
Well, we've already said, uh, I've already used the, the uh, spiritual hand grenade of Ephesians 5.25, but the whole chapter five in Ephesians is a good study for some, anybody that's having trouble in marriage, either a man or a woman, because it's got some core, core rules and core guidance on how marriage should work, both for the husband and the wife. Um, reading 1 Peter 3, 7, you know, treat your wife in an understanding manner and as a weaker vessel so that your prayers might not be hindered. You know, that's the part of that verse that most people don't remember, that your prayers won't be hindered. You don't want your prayers hindered. I mean, you want, when you pray to God about something, you want your prayers to go, your prayers to go right to God. You don't want them to be hindered in any way. And I don't know how that works. I don't know how the prayers are hindered. All it says is they are. Second Timothy 5, 8, it's just about being a good family man. You know, take care of your family. And if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And I think for him and for a lot of guys, well, let me go first. Read the scripture at least three different times. Don't sit down and read it all at once. Record the time or day that you do it. And memorize 1 Peter 3, 7. Be the, treat your wife in an understanding manner. Don't you women, don't you, don't you just wish your, your husband would, would read that every once in a while? How many, how many women would wish that? Okay, we got two there, three there. I think, I think there's probably more. Um, down to item six there. Read, listen, watch. And I wrote a number of, of books down. And any of these would be good. The Complete Husband by Lou Priolo, Measure of a Man by Getz, and again, Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott. I've gone through that book with a number of guys. It takes a long time to get it through, but it's very valuable. And it's, 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 just, it's just good, solid scripture on how to be a good husband, how to treat your wife, how to do, stop doing things that annoy your wife and are wrong, and start doing the things that make you a godly husband. Uh, when they do that, oh, there's one more. Divorce, before you say, I don't. You know, if, if Sarah and Steve keep going along this track that they're on, one of them is going to start thinking about divorce. And we don't want them to even start thinking about divorce. So I put that in there about... Uh, before, divorce before you say I don't. Uh, if you assume, uh, we're assuming that they're not considering a divorce. I didn't put that in there in that scenario. But if they are, you for sure want them to get into that, that, uh, that book. Listen or watch. Uh, John Morrison has a pillars class, uh, the pillars of the family. And one of the DVDs that he does, one of the sessions he does, it's a little less than an hour long, it's called You the Man. And it's about the responsibilities of a man, not just to his wife, but to his family and his kids. But that is an excellent starting point for a guy who's having trouble with his family, who's having marital problems, having trouble with his wife. Um, it's, it's good to get in that early, and that's a, that's a way that, that's one of those DVDs that great. And there are others, too. Uh, John does, I, I mentioned, the marriage series. Um, we have another guy that we use, uh, Brad Bigney, who does a marriage series on, on, uh, called Mercy and Marriage Collide. Now, that's a CD series. It's not a video series. 
but these are these are excellent training tools for somebody who's having trouble in his marriage. So what I'd like to do now in the time we have remaining is you've had the six steps. You've had the six steps beginning with gaining involvement, finishing up with homework. But I'm sure that you've, you've got questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have my wife, Rosemary, come up and join me. And we are going to entertain questions on any of those six steps. And we're going to have, uh, we have Mark Francis in the back who has a walk around mic. So if you have a question, he'll come over to you. You can ask that question. We'll put our heads together and see if we can come up with an answer. Rosemary has taught this, this same material before. Um, so she's familiar with this, of course. Questions? Yeah. And so you're, this idea of assigning homework. Mm -hmm. um, in your experiences, how many people, what percentage of people don't do it? Do you assign it like Steve? Does he, what percentage of the Steves come back and have completed it? And if they haven't completed it, what do you do? I think that that's a good question. Mark, I think probably we haven't had trouble with uh, somebody who hasn't done the homework at all. If that's the case, then you've got more of a problem. What we have had people do is come in and really kind of have it done. You can tell that they've done it quickly. They didn't put a lot of thought into it. Some of sometimes they they haven't filled out any any uh, their journal or anything on the homework. And if that's the case, we just really confront them. And you can bring this, I'll ask Rosemary can do the follow-up on this. We confront them and say, hey, you're not spending enough time on this. We're not getting in-depth answers. You need to work harder at this. And if they don't, then you're getting into the point where you're saying, hey, maybe they just don't want to change. So that. that's one of the values of the journal is that when you have someone come in and you can tell that they have written things down rapidly, maybe like in the car before they walked in, and I'm, not, I'm serious about that, that you say, next week we'd like you to use paper for your answers that you would write down in your journal or in a notebook your responses to these things so that you give them the idea of how much depth and how much time you're expecting them to put in to that assignment. And so that's, that's something that's very helpful. Also, depending, as Ken talked about, who is this person that you're dealing with? How, how, how mature are they as a believer? How much Bible knowledge do they have? It might be that that person comes back, Mark, and, you know, they're just kind of young in the Lord or they don't have a lot of Bible knowledge, and they, they made a shot at it. Then you want to encourage that one. Remember, encourage the weak, faint-hearted. You want to say, hey, thanks for that effort. You know, I can see you thought about that some. So next week when you come back, let's, you know, put a little bit more into it. So once again, you think about who, who is this person that I'm sitting with? Because they, they need encouragement or sometimes they need that little in the back too. So that's kind of where you weigh that person. That again? That in the back, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the shoes here. Okay. 
Somebody else. Robin. Just, just wait, till, wait till Mark gets yeah, over so, we have, so everybody can hear you. <laughs> um, when, I mean, you're talking, there's six steps, and you're talking about giving homework. Mm -hmm. Are you going through all these six steps in the first counseling thing, or how long would you say it takes so you give them homework and all that? Excellent question. That's a good question. Yeah, I, you give them homework from the very get-go. As a matter of fact, you probably put together a homework sheet just on the basis of the intake form, or at least start one. You may change it, but you're probably going to give them that in the homework from the very first meeting, and you'll have some idea because of that intake form. Now, the rest of the steps are somewhat slower. In other words, you're not going to be giving them uh, uh, the instruction, the biblical instruction, most likely until, say, the second or third time that you meet, and maybe later than that. Mm -hmm. Depends on how much data gathering you, you're going to do. Right. They, I think you they you give them a little biblical instruction, but it's not as in-depth until after you've gone through the process. But, like, giving hope is, is number two. Well, you're giving hope you want to give hope all the time. And as you go further on, you'll, you'll hear something come up and you may have met four or five times and it's time you think, Oh, there's something I need to gather some more data on that. So it's like Ken's read earlier, you're weaving things in and out as you see the need. And as they, uh, occasion arises to use one of the steps, but it's not like, okay, today lesson session number one, Step number one, and then six steps. It's always interwoven, and and it makes it it makes it a lot easier on the discipler or the counselor to put together that homework assignment mm -hmm. at that first meeting because that's what you're going to probably talk about mostly at that follow up meeting the next time you meet, mm -hmm. and it gives you some place to go. It gives you again, it gives you structure, and it's not like you're going to sit down and say, "What are we going to talk about today?" Of course, you're going to get updates and that sort of thing and data gathering, but it gives you something. Sometimes you'll spend oh more than half the time discussing the homework mm -hmm. if you, if it's a, if it's targeted about with the specific sins and things like that. Oops, uh, the second. Yeah, Kim, what happens when you're going over the homework and it takes over most all the next session? And you're not ready to give new homework because new data has come up, new facts have come up, new uh, new feelings, a new a new path. Um, you're not ready to give homework at that setting. Oftentimes, you want to pray about it before you actually give new homework. Mm -hmm. um, how do you handle that where it doesn't start crunching up against your next meeting? Or uh, what I hear you saying at the question, I part of it. What I at least part of the question I heard was, what do you do when homework uh, discussion takes up? The whole, the whole second, say the second meeting. See, I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, it, if you're getting that much discussion out of the homework, I think that means you you pick successful homework for that particular person. And if it takes, I say, uh, maybe the, the the second session is your is your you know you run out of time and you still haven't got through the homework. You just continue that into the third session. And make sure that you cover everything that you wanted that counselee to cover in that homework before you go on to the next thing. And, then, and again, and you talked about data gathering. I'm not exactly sure what what you meant by that. Exactly. You 
gathering data all the time, regardless right. of which step you're on. Mm -hmm. And you may be gathering new data at a subsequent meeting, which mm -hmm. will change what's homework assignments you might be right. having, which might change the scriptures. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you won't know what that is until after you've got that data, mm -hmm. oftentimes after the session, when I've actually gone through it, then I realize I have to change course and... Yeah, I, I said, okay, I got it. I think there's two things you can do there. You can ask them to, um, if you have the idea, you can say, listen, I, based on what we learned at this session, uh, I'm gonna give you uh, some homework I hadn't thought about giving you before. And another thing you can do that we've done is that Rosemary, when we've, we've uh, that maybe there's kind of a crook in the road and we learn something new about this person, we'll say, we need to sit down and talk about this together and we will email you mm -hmm. the homework and we make sure we get it to them as soon as possible because uh, there may not be, you know, we may need to talk about stuff and uh, you and Faith maybe need to talk about something together before you even put together the homework that you uh, you make in, and you can cancel homework. You know, you can cancel it and start over any, at any time. Okay, second question, sorry. Um, what are the signals that you see when you're doing marriage counseling that it's time to split man-to-man mm -hmm. -man and woman-to-woman -woman mm -hmm. and then bring them back together? What are some of the things you're looking for that you think the counseling session is gonna be more effective mm -hmm. um, Sometimes the couples want to break up at the first meeting because they're so mad at each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're going to have two separate homework sheets probably mm -hmm. if you decide to split these two people together, two separate. And that's a good that's a good point because that that's going to happen because there's certain things that you want to hear from the guy that you may not that he may not want to share in the presence of his wife and vice versa. So mm -hmm. then you do the two separate homeworks and you may meet maybe several se sessions separately before you go back and meet together. Mm -hmm. Did you have anything to say about that? No, but I think Mike had a question, didn't you, Mike? Did you have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're always adapting, you're always listening, so don't let that throw you off. And if you have to say, let me just think about it and we'll get back to you or how to do proceed from now. That's, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam's question prompted this question, or mm -hmm. Sam's questions. Um, when what causes a counseling session or counseling time to end? Um, either too short or, I mean, what the, the desired goal is what and, and when do you end a counseling session or does it go on for the lifetime of the counselee or the counselor? That's a good question. <laughs> when, do you, when do you terminate counseling is what you're saying with somebody. When do you terminate counseling? You want to answer that, Rosemary? I mean, that's that that's a hard one because first of all they come in and you you want to hear what they're coming in with you want to let them know that you're hearing what they're bringing to the to the session but as you listen to them you begin to realize there's something deeper under there and so you want to get to that too and it depends on how much they're willing to let God direct them. We can't change them. We can give them material. We can give them resources. We can pray with them. We can talk through. But it just changes with every single person or couple that you ever deal with. There's, there's no, count. you know, okay, you got it. You got 12 shots at us. And then, you know, if you haven't got it, 
you're out of there. But no, it's, that's not very effective. <laughs> so it's it really just changes, Mike. I I don't I can't ever tell you what it what it would be for me. Yeah. So I think but. I think it's pretty obvious if uh, if there's it comes to the point. Well, for one thing, if you feel that their problems are are ninety eight percent over or completed, or they're doing things on their own using scripture. In other words, they have to be able to use scripture themselves and not depend on the counselor mm -hmm. to guide them into the Bible. When they get to that point, you can say, okay, yeah. it's time for you guys to go out on your own. With the, you know, with the realization that if they get in trouble again, that they can call back up. Yeah, you know, they, they call, can, they sometimes can re engage, they, in other words. They call for a, what they call a booster shot. You know, you hadn't seen them for a couple months, and so they call in. Have a question over here. Okay, I'm a basic kind of a guy, and I think a lot of guys are like that. And um, say, for instance, you have a couple who, uh, a guy, I'm speaking of myself here, I like the cliff note version. You know, I, I get to the point quickly. Now, my wife, you could get a mini epistle out of her and in regards to a question. So when you're assigning these homework on a very first session, how do you get that guy, more guys, I guess, than women, to, to listen and open up to the extent that you want on the very get-go? How do you get him to bite on that bait? Well, it, I think I mentioned that when, uh, very early on in my presentation there. You have to you have to gain passport with that guy. He has to know that uh, he can trust you, that you care for him, and that you can help him. Mm -hmm. And if he believes that, and you establish rapport with him, then he is much more likely to open up. And I think one of the things that Mike, Mike uh, I think it was Mike brought up, if you um, if you feel that you're not moving into his life at the rate you want to, then you counsel him separately from the woman because he may have something that he's doing or that's in his past that he doesn't want you to know about or he doesn't want his wife to know about. And you have to figure out what that is. You have to go fishing until you figure out what that is. And uh, guys are normally a little more closed than women. That's, uh, that's the way we're built. But um, quite frankly, I, I haven't had trouble moving into guys' lives as long as I don't get too much in a hurry like I was I did with the first guy where I lobbed the spirit, the scriptural grenade into his lap before he was ready for it. But once you, uh, if you pace yourself, I think pretty soon you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to move into their lives. And part of that's personality-wise. And since you're a straight shooter, I would recommend Stuart Scott to you. And if you like, if you like that sort of thing, he is a, he's wonderful for guys, and um, not so much for women, but. <laughs> Uh, I'd recommend you getting that book, Exemplary Husband. And some of those, some of those pamphlets are also very, very good. Okay. I think we're done. Uh, we're out of time, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Did you want well, thank you, guys. Uh, short thing about tomorrow morning starts at 845. Uh, there's three things going on. Counselor preaching the gospel to yourself. My lovely wife's going to do that. Uh, a video of live counseling with Randy Patton. I'm going to do that in the sovereignty of God by Hunter over there sitting. That man over there is going to talk to you about the sovereignty of God. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time we've had together, a time to explore ways to 
just to get into people's lives using your word, your living word, and you and showing you, uh, showing people how they can actually have God speak to him to them through Scripture, and how that um, we can we can actually uh, help them see their sins as God sees their sins and have the corrective action in place, repentance and change and growth in their lives through doing these procedures that we've talked about today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.